Welcome to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm BHE Senior Editor Tom Valentino, and today we have Karen Treatment Center CEO Doug Tiemann with us. Doug recently announced that uh, after 25 years at the helm of Karen, he's going to be stepping away as CEO next June, and uh, earlier this month he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Drug and Alcohol Service Providers Organization of Pennsylvania. He joins us now. Uh, Doug, welcome to the BHE podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate uh, you taking the time to be with me and let me uh, chat with you this morning. Absolutely. Um, You know, today we know Care and Treatment Centers to be one of the top organizations in the addiction treatment space. You know, that wasn't necessarily the case when you came to the company in 1995, um, just kind of going back to square one here, I, I'm curious, what appealed to you about the opportunity to join Karen when you did? Yeah, thank you so much, Tom. Uh, Karen has always been a, a, a legacy organization. There are a handful of, of uh, organizations that entered the substance use treatment field very early on. And Chit Chat Farms, as uh, Karen was originally known, was certainly one of those and was truly a pioneer in the 60s and the 70s, and even into the early 80s. And uh, then like many, um, you know, there's goes through the cyclical effects and and just had some some financial challenges. Uh, So when I was given this opportunity in 1995, the things that really struck me were legacy, it's uh, interest in being a leader, interest in being a pioneer, terrific core values. And I said, we can fix the financial part. So it was very attractive. And I'm really delighted that they selected me. And I'm delighted that I had an opportunity to do this uh, position 25 years ago. You yourself are in recovery. I'm curious how your personal experiences have shaped your leadership style and your management of Karen over these past 25 years. Well, what's, what's interesting is when I actually entered this, this field 37 years ago, I really knew nothing about uh, alcoholism or drug addiction. Um, I had always been in nonprofit work and kind of considered myself a career do-gooder. So this was an attractive field to do some good. I really didn't know much about this. And so as I began to learn about it, eventually... Um, in 2008, it became apparent that I needed my own treatment. Um, so it's kind of interesting that of my 25 years at Karen's almost equally split. Uh, the first 13 years, I was not in recovery. The last 13 years, I will be in recovery. So I had an opportunity um, to kind of look at leadership styles in both. And, and the, the biggest difference, and when I was asked, am asked about what difference is really the, the level of, of empathy and understanding, ability now to, I can talk with patients. Um, I've walked in those shoes, uh, both uh, pre-recovery and, and post-recovery, can talk to families, uh, ability to lecture to patients. And, and to me, that's been a real gift to be able to do that, something I could not do prior to 2008. Um, yeah, it, it certainly uh, just kind of builds that, you know, relatable component. Um, and I'm sure that's really, you know, kind of shaped those conversations with patients, uh, you know, over these last, uh, you know, 12, 13 years or so. Yes, it's, it's, it's been a real blessing. I, I really feel, you know, nothing happens by chance. And, and uh, for me, it was a, a real gift 
to uh, be able to enter my own recovery and now be able to share those experiences. And I actually, uh, on a monthly basis, meet with our executives uh, in the executive track and have an opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, I was very successful as the CEO of Karen prior to 2008. Uh, so we were able to talk about how we use success oftentimes to maybe, uh, you know, reduce consequences, uh, ability to manipulate schedules. Um, and if we're successful, you surely don't have a problem. I'm able to now talk to them about you've been very successful in life, but you can still have this you know, disease and, uh, and life is certainly not as fulfilling as it can be. And your career is not as fulfilling as it can be once you're in recovery. So I'm able to really have that very relatable experience to chat with them about. Absolutely. Um, back on the business side, I was uh, as I was preparing for this, I, I saw in an interview recently, you had said that not-for-profit addiction treatment providers have to balance their mission with their margins. Uh, can you just kind of expound on that thought a little bit, you know, what you mean by it and how that has applied um, to, you know, your work at Karen? Yeah, it's a, it's been a long time, I think it eventually came, uh, I forget the exact author of it, but the concept of no mission or no margin, no mission for nonprofits has been around. And I think it came initially from uh, the CEO of a of a Catholic hospital. And then I forget her name. Off, but it's a, it's an important concept that if we're not financially solid, we can't do any good. You can't give away what you don't have. And so it's one of the concepts that we talk about. So we have to make sure that we're a financially strong organization. The stronger we are, the more we can give away. It was kind of interesting to me when I first came to Karen in 1995. Very, as I said, great values. Uh, they were they were with about an $11 million budget, giving away $2 million a year in charity care and losing about a million dollars a year. And I said, you can't give away what you don't have. We keep doing this. Eventually, we'll have nothing to give to anyone. So we're going to actually give away a little bit less for the next couple of years, but we're going to get stronger financially. And eventually we're going to be able to give away a whole lot more. So like today, we'll give away $10 million in charity care because we're a much stronger organization financially. Jim Collins, uh, who wrote the great books uh, From Good to Great and Built the Last, has written a very interesting uh, monograph for nonprofits about the overall financial picture. And one of the things that we talk about is being strong financially, which takes into uh, account not only your operating piece, but how do you also do on philanthropy? And how do you do on grants? Because that's also part of the overall financial picture. So I think nonprofits need to figure out what their financial formula is. Make sure that it is strong, because the stronger that it is, the more mission work you can do, the more charity care you can do, the more uh, good works you can do within your community that don't have a real business purpose, but they have a great mission purpose. You know, another piece of that financial picture um, and, you know, something I think that has really defined your time at Karen has been expanding access to treatment, particularly for the middle class. Uh, what's your thought process been behind pursuing that strategy and uh, how have you been able to get it done? It's a, it's a very interesting trajectory because in 2001, we actually became the first uh, treatment center in the United States that stopped doing managed care. We just said, we're not going to deal with any contracts where an outside agency tells us 
how to provide care because we found that a big part of managed care was actually managing costs and managing costs was cutting days and cutting services. So we just stopped doing that. And everyone thought in 2001, we were insane. And we said, this is going to work if we're, if we can do two things. Well, one is we're going to have to have our treatment so good that people with healthcare choices will pay to utilize our services and what it actually costs. And the second is we're going to raise so much money that for those who can't afford it, we can provide charity care. And that worked extremely well for us and became very common um, for others to even try to emulate that model. And then I think with the Affordable Care Act, where insurance became more available to more people, what maybe pre-2008, yeah, we're willing to pay for that because we get insurance isn't going to pay very much for it. Now, all of a sudden, sort of uh, an unalienable right for Americans was insurance should pay for my health care coverage. And if now, all of a sudden, because of parity, you, know, uh, you know, addiction and substance use services should be paid for, we needed to move back into that, into that direction. So the next step was to do out-of-network billing, and that worked well for a while. And then finally, in 2015, we began to see that there were insurance companies that were actually interested in our level of care and willing to allow Karen to manage the care. So we have a handful of contracts today with insurers. And what's unique about uh, our contracts is we get to manage the care. There is no outside agency. They allow us to be able to manage that. And the beauty of that for us is individuals who we would have probably given charity care to five years ago now are able to use insurance. There still are individuals that don't have appropriate insurance coverage or insurance isn't enough that we can now actually see the use of charity care to leverage people to get longer length of stay and help them in the overall uh, recovery continuum. You know, when we start talking about payers, one of the big themes that we see in uh, addiction treatment today, um, particularly these conversations between providers and payers, is the measurement of treatment outcomes. How do you measure treatment outcomes? And as an organization, how have your methods evolved over the years? Yeah, they, they definitely have evolved over the years. It's, it's really been a process going way back to the 1980s when most insurers used a, an organization out of Minnesota called New Standards. Uh, and by, you know, you know, any optics we would look at it today, we would say that it was certainly not overly sophisticated and it certainly wasn't adequate because what they did is they took a certain percent of individuals going through treatment. They called people up and it was self-report. So, you know, automatically it becomes somewhat suspect. But I really give any organization that utilizes that model a lot of credit because it demonstrates, A, we wanted to know, we cared about it. We wanted to see, you know, were we getting better over time? Were we getting worse over time? And, and actually it was that new standards data that forced us in 2001 to make that decision because we said now that we see length of stay going down because of managed care we're seeing that our data actually getting worse and as a nonprofit organization i really challenged our board and said why are we here are we here just to have people roll through and give a you know, few people jobs or do we want people to get well because if we want people to get well the data would say this isn't working so 
then we moved from, uh, from new standards to the University of Pennsylvania to TRI, uh, treatment, uh, 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 TRI from uh, Treatment Research Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. And that's been extremely uh, beneficial, very sophisticated. But again, it has a lot of self-report. Um, while we were looking at all of our, treat of our patients and not just a selected you know, 5%, 10%, 20%, looking at everybody and following everybody up and calling everybody up, it still was self-report. Um, which again is somewhat suspect, but when you're doing that within your entire end, that obviously again gives us some data and, and some trends. Uh, the next iteration of that came probably about 10 years ago with, again, with TRI, where we began a program we call a Karen My First Year Recovery, where we had a group of individuals that we said, in addition to the self-report, we're also gonna ask family, therapist, employer, sponsor, you know, we kind of called it, the, you know, a circle of support around them. It might change from individual to individual, but we would get from other individuals around that person who know them, how they're doing. We also started using the urine drug screen, uh, which would tell us whether or not the person had been using. So that gave us a nice combination of what the science told us, the person was either absent or not, but it also gave us other observations about, you know, what their quality of life is better. You know, they're a better father, they're a better employee, uh, they're, you know, a, a better member of society. So that has been extremely helpful. And I think that data helped us then to begin to share with insurers in 2015. And uh, as they came on board, I think the best measurements that we do today are probably from insurance companies because very, you know, it is very objective and uh, they're in control of it. And some of the things that we find from our insurers is they look at how many people do they re need to retreat in the first year of treatment. And our numbers are much lower than their average. They also look at what are the uh, healthcare costs associated with those who've been to treatment, those who've been to current are much less. Um, so when we look at that data, we continue to say, you know what, we're making some nice progress here. We still have a, from a total uh, healthcare perspective, getting to the point where you actually have physicians reporting on recovery, which would be ideal. You know, patient comes to Karen and how, you know, just like you would with any other kind of uh, surgery or, or procedure, you would Every time you go in for your doctor's checkup, you say, how are you doing? That is where I would ultimately like to see us get. But we're making progress. Great evolution. Um, as we say in recovery, progress, not perfection. But we're certainly making progress. Do you think it's feasible for the field as a whole to start developing more standardized outcomes measurement practices? And if so, who's going to be leading those conversations? Is it going to be providers working together or is it going to be insurers like what you were saying, you know, developing uh, th their measurements and, you know, comparing, uh, you know, the different uh, outcomes between the uh, the providers they're working with? Well, they always say follow the money. So the money <laughs> comes from insurers. So uh, I think I, I think as a field, we have wanted you know, like we like when we started doing this for us, it was not about marketing. For us, it was. Is what we are doing working how do we do it better how do we improve you know i've always kind of said the moonshot for recovery is 
wouldn't it be great if we would have a hundred percent recovery someday? And while we're a long ways away from that, you don't know how close you might be if you're not measuring it along the way. However, I think some good organizations like like Shatterproof, which has been working diligently with insurers and uh, state agencies to try to come up with a level of uniformity and say, what are the common things we're going to measure? And, and you know, and for years that just befuddled the treatment industry. We were going to say, okay, we're going to count sobriety. Well, what if you use twice in one year, but then you got, the, you know, Hey, I haven't, you know, I haven't been sober all year. I, you know, is that success or non-success? And so looking at this continuum has certainly that has been brought in by insurers and other payers, I think has helped us realize that again, progress, not perfection. We'd love to get to perfection, but if we improve quality of life, reduce use and make people better citizens, that is some progress, even if it isn't perfection. And it makes sense. You know, if you're, you know, doing well with, with, with your patients. If the, the treatment's good, the marketing is going to take care of itself. You don't have to get creative with how you're Correct. marketing yourself if if the work itself is, you know, holding up. Correct. And, you know, and just being able to report the facts and the beauty of being nonprofit, we don't, we don't spend all that much on marketing and probably the best marketing we have is, is word of mouth. Like um, our Again, it just amazes me that a, a major number of our referents come from alumni. Uh, I do a lecture once a month and I ask, you know, how you found out about Karen? It just amazes me that almost half the people will raise their hand. I found out from somebody else in recovery. I found out from somebody else who went to Karen, which, again, that, the whole idea of word of mouth. You know, people like what they got when they were here. They tell others about it. Say, Let's, you know. That's that's where we need to go, because, you know, let, let's be honest on the websites and our Internet marketing. We all look great. <laughs> we all look fabulous. Sure. But word of mouth is people who've, you know, you know, you know, eaten our food, slept in our beds, been with our therapists, been with our doctors, been with our nurses. You know, after a month or so, they have a pretty good idea of, of what kind of organization we are. Exactly. What would you say has been the biggest change you've seen in addiction treatment overall over these past 25 years that you've been with Karen, um, any trends in particular that, you know, you've observed things that have really, uh, stuck with you, uh, over the last, uh, two and a half decades or so. Me, the, the, the biggest improvement has to do with the, you know, kind of lumping together medicine, science, and the whole idea of being part of now the medical and overall health community, when I started this in 1983, we, we were an outlier. And I, and, it would, and I would say for probably for the first 20 years, we were pretty much of an outlier. Um, two th and a number of things have, have happened. Um, I really think uh, Dr. Volkov at, um, you know, at NIDA with all of the brain chemistry research and it, with opiates, which has been a horrible you know, a crisis to our country, but it has brought it into kind of mainstream medicine, uh, the Affordable Care Act, as well as the uh, Parity Act. All of that has made medicine is okay. Doctors talking about this is okay. 
science and understanding what's happening is okay. We've, we've taken it out of kind of this uh, mysterious, you know, something's going on there, but, but we really don't know what it is to now being much more transparent. So I'm really delighted to see even major, you know, healthcare systems now look at behavior healthcare and realize that, you know, untreated substance use disorder and under other behavior health issues is a major negative uh, financial impact on the healthcare system. So for us to be in that conversation is, you know, something that I would not have imagined 37 years ago, but it's, it's to me, the biggest move forward. We still have a ways to go. Uh, there's still, unfortunately, too much stigma, still way too much that people don't know about this but we're making progress. What's the next big change moving forward you'd like to see then? Is it on one of those areas that, uh, that you just mentioned or, or where do things go from here? Or where would you like them to go from here? What I would like for it to do is, is event like other, like other uh, medical disorders start with the primary healthcare physician. They understand substance use disorder, not embarrassed to talk about it, uh, able to refer you to get the help you need. And then monitor it when you come back. So if you did go to an outpatient program, if that was their recommendation, if they did put you on, um, you know, medical uh, uh, assisted treatment, you know, that they monitor how you're doing. And so that to me is the real good data. That's how data from all of the, you know, all other uh, uh, healthcare issues are, you know, that's, that's how we know how well we do is that kind of data. We need to get that so that it, you know, it's not anecdotal. It's not one treatment center checking this and another treatment center checking that. Uh, one insurance company's monitoring this and three others aren't doing anything. So this, this brings a level of uniformity. That to me, again, is kind of the, you know, the moonshot. It would be great when we're that part of uh, the regular healthcare system. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, when we talked back in August, it sounded like your plan was to help with the transition uh, to your successor as Karen's CEO. Uh, sounded like you wanted to do some traveling, and then uh, you might be staying involved with the addiction treatment field, uh, maybe in a scaled-back capacity of some kind, um, maybe with a not, not-for-profit organization, possibly as a volunteer. Is that all still your plan? Or I, I know you said you were, I think the phrase you used, you were starting to sketch some things out. Is, is that picture coming into focus at all for you? Yeah, hey, thanks for asking that, Tom. Um, I've been a big five-year planner. My life's been sort of governed by these five-year strategic plans. So what I've decided to do is next year, depending on how much the next CEO wants me to be involved with Karen, because I want to keep that door open to, to be helpful in any way that, that, that I can, uh, either as you know, whether it means as a consultant, a volunteer, whatever that might be, I'm open to all of that because, I mean, you know, this has been uh, a place that I've grown to love and, and want to be helpful in any way I can, you know, once I you know, turn over the reins to the next CEO. So when, when I have a little more clarity about that, I can, you know, uh, be a little bit more concrete about my next plan. If, if, if the individual wants me to be very involved, that would be terrific. If they don't, I understand that as well. And then I would uh, morph more into, you know, what other, you know, nonprofit policy area 
could I be involved with uh, within the substance use field? I mean, it's been 37 years of my life. I want to continue to be a part of it. Uh, two real big priorities for me are uh, I love the nonprofit world. I love, you know, being a career do-gooder. Um, and I also care about uh, substance use disorder. And if I can, you know, be helpful, I certainly want to, to do that. And uh, you do uh, also mention good another part, uh, which is to also have more time and freedom and flexibility uh, to do things with my family that I haven't had as much chance to do uh, over the past 25 years. Well, hopefully uh, the rest of the world settles down here a little bit and travel yeah. becomes a little bit more feasible, but uh, yes. some, we yeah. all have some work to do on that front in the meantime. Um, yeah. I think that's a good, good stopping point for us. Uh, Doug, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. All right. That's going to do it for us as a reminder. You could subscribe to the BHE podcast on Apple Podcasts and uh, many other listening platforms. You can also catch up on past episodes on our website, behavioral.net. Our thanks once again to Karen Treatment Center CEO, Doug Tiedman, for joining us. I'm Tom Valentino, and this has been the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. Mm-hmm.